0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the The big big dinosaur dinosaur podcast,
1: podcast. where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of
0: all things dinosaur.
2: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's episode is brought to you by TRX Dinosaurs. They have innovative dinosaur art, including affordable, posable dinosaur sculptures and puppets, as well as some cool animatronics. And you can find out more at trxdinosaurs.com.
1: And on Instagram at trxdinosaurs.
2: This week, we have an interview with Carrie Woodruff, who is a sauropod guy.
1: This is a sauropod episode, spoiler alert.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We also have dinosaur of the day, Giraffe Titan, a sauropod. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons, as always. And this week, we would like to thank Chris... Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Blaise Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Paraloralophus, and Stefan.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support and keep sending us messages and dinosaur requests and let us know what you like about the show. We offer a number of rewards for our Dinosaur Enthusiast patrons, so if you are interested then check them out at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash
2: Jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur, but it's not really that new, <laughs> kind of like last week. This one's an ornithopod, and it was described by Daniel Madzia and others. The discovery was in the Czech Republic, and this makes it the first Czech-named dinosaur ever. Whoa. Yeah.
1: Check it out.
2: The original discovery was actually published back in 2005, and back then the article was titled, First Cenomanian Dinosaur from Central Europe, and then in parentheses, Czech Republic. Very accurate. And they assigned it to Iguanodontidae, but they didn't give it a specific species name. So they thought it was close enough to an Iguanodon to get that kind of classification, but then they... Kind of just went into a description of where they found it and some other details about the bone. But now it has an official name, which is Burianosaurus augustai, And Burianosaurus is... Is
1: not Iguanodon. Correct.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Although they said it was included in Iguanodon today, which is a clade. So it could have been Iguanodon or it could have been something else.
1: Iguanodon.
2: Yes. But Burianosaurus... Is in honor of Czech paleo artist Zednek Burian, who was alive from 1905 to 1981. And he, quote, greatly influenced the perception of dinosaurs during most of the 20th century, end quote. So I think he's kind of up there with Charles Knight and some of the other paleo artists we talk about from the 20th century. That's cool. Yeah, definitely deserving of a name. And the species name, Augusta I, is in honor of, quote, Czech paleontologist and prolific science popularizer, Joseph Augusta, end quote.
1: Never heard that term before, science popularizer. Yeah,
2: I thought it was funny that that was actually in the journal article. Yeah. <laughs> and Word tried to autocorrect that because it was like popularizer is not a word. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I didn't want to call him like an evangelist mm. or a promoter.
1: It's Got a nice ring to it.
2: It sounds okay. It's interesting that the first name and the last name are both named after people, but different people. I guess there were just a bunch of Czech people deserving of names, but they didn't have any dinosaurs to work with. They were waiting. uh, Yeah, they had to jam it all in. (laughs) So Burianosaurus is from the Cenomanian about 95 million years ago, and they only found the left femur as well as some other indeterminate pieces of bone which is why originally they didn't name a dinosaur because a lot of times when you only find one bone, it's not enough to be diagnostic and really define a new dinosaur because it could just be a femur of something else you found or you might just leave it open for when a more complete dinosaur is found later and you can kind of get a better idea of what a good name might be. (laughs) And on top of that, a lot of times animals that are named after one bone are later kind of thrown away Because they decide that it's not diagnostic enough to really stand up to the scrutiny of other skeletons that have too much in common with that bone. So the femur is about 40 centimeters or 16 inches long, which is pretty short for a dinosaur, especially for an herbivorous dinosaur, which tend to be kind of big. And if you think about it, your own femur, that's from your knee to your hip socket, is likely longer than 16 inches. I would say. I think mine's probably longer than that.
1: I don't know about mine. (laughs) Maybe.
2: I mean, it doesn't seem that large for a a femur. You see some of those sauropod femurs that are six, seven feet long.
1: Well, if only we could have sauropod femurs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's bigger than you, though. (laughs) They did a thin slice on the bone to do some histology, and they found that it was relatively compact bone which means that it had more or less finished growing, and it was probably a young adult. So even though that femur is kind of small, it's probably about as big as it was going to get. The original analysis called it an iguanodontid, which means it was inside ankyloplexia, but the new analysis actually put it outside of ankyloplexia, and this is the first time I had seen ankyloplexia, but... It is not related to ankylosauria, unfortunately, although the word is related to it. They both have that root of ankylo, which means stiff, and in this case, the polexia is thumb, so it's stiff thumb, (laughs) and, you know, iguanodontids have those thumb spikes in general, therefore stiff thumbs. But when they reanalyze the bone for this paper, they recovered it fairly close to Mutaburosaurus, which is pretty interesting since that's an Australian dinosaur. And we're in the Cretaceous, so this dinosaur was on an island in Europe. So <laughs> it's pretty far away for that sort of relation. Although Mutaburosaurus was quite a bit earlier, so we're probably just missing fossils in between the two of them. Like I just hinted at, it lived on the coast of an archipelago, and it looks like it was near a salt marsh. And it was found about 70 kilometers, or 40 miles southeast of Prague, and it was very close to a city called Kutnahora, which Sabrina and I went to and checked out a Catholic chapel that's decorated with human bones.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting experience.
2: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They also have a really old silver mine and some other interesting stuff. It's a cool town, definitely worth checking out. I was surprised to see that pop up. I was like, this name looks familiar. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to check into it. Since Boreanosaurus is so small compared to its relatives, they propose that it might be an insular dwarf, which means basically that it was under the pressures of island dwarfism and shrinking due to either a lack of food or other pressures local to that area. And I tried to get a ballpark estimate of how big it is. It's probably about 10 feet or 3 meters long, as best I can tell. So pretty small, especially compared to something like Mutaburosaurus or some of those other big ornithopods. But now the Czech Republic has a dinosaur. That's cool. Even if it's only one femur.
1: That's something.
2: Yeah. It was enough to make a bunch of paleo art.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next, a fossilized nest of a new kind of dinosaur egg has been found in China, specifically the Xioning County in Anhui province. The fossils are from the late Cretaceous, and they've been named the Xioning umbrella shaped eggs after their shape in the rock that they made. The fossils were preserved in Anhui's quote unquote red beds, which are layers of red hued sandstone, shale and limestone. It sounds like a pretty cool find. Yeah. Next, there's a couple of scientists who are arguing that there was not actually a mass extinction at the end of the Triassic, which is often thought of as the third largest of the five largest extinctions on Earth. Mm. Instead, Lawrence Tanner and his colleague Spencer Lucas said that they think that there's a little more to that story and that, yes, there was an environmental crisis with a lot of upheaval, but it took tens of millions of years. So it would have been a series of extinctions instead of a single mass extinction. So we are recording a little bit early, but they're making their case at the end of October at the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America in Seattle. And if they're right, then we may have to rethink what we know about the early evolution of dinosaurs, because there's that whole idea that that mass extinction event led to the rise of dinosaurs.
2: Well, I think either way, if it's a single mass extinction or if it's several less mass extinctions (laughs) you've got a large hole in the ecosystem that dinosaurs can evolve to fill so it probably wouldn't affect them that much
1: uh could be but lucas also said that there were large dinosaur-like footprints from before this extinction event or series of extinction events so could be interesting to explore yeah yeah if we hear more about what comes of this debate we'll keep you posted According to On the White, the future of Dinosaur Isle is uncertain, which is not great. But Uh,
2: First Jurassica, now the Isle of Dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, Dinosaur Isle. So the Isle of White Council (laughs) is looking for a, a development partner or consortia to take over Dinosaur Isle. And interestingly, the Friends of Dinosaur Isle, which is a group of people who want to keep the Dinosaur Isle Museum around, have offered to take over before, and they've been trying to for the last eight years, but... For one reason or another, the council hasn't allowed this to happen, and they haven't responded as to why they haven't allowed this yet. Dinosaur Isle was the first purpose-built dinosaur museum in the UK, and it was built in 2001, and at the time cost 2.7 million pounds. And we'll keep tabs on this story, and hopefully we'll hear more about the future plans soon. Next, the New York Times reported on what's going on near Dinosaur National Monument in Utah. So basically, this December, the Bureau of Land Management will auction gas and oil drilling rights on 140 square miles or 94,000 acres of land, some of them which are very close to Dinosaur National Monument. From the visitor center, you'll be able to see drill rigs and pump jacks, though they will make an effort to reduce noise and minimize visibility of the drilling. There's a lot of concern over the dust and lights, air and water pollution, and threats to endangered species, and as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate on both sides, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there.
2: At least they haven't started drilling on any of those federal lands that are designated as national parks or forests or any of those things yet.
1: Yeah, they mentioned at SVP that that was a concern, right?
2: Yeah, basically shrinking some of the parks or undoing their park status to Mm -hmm. potentially open them up for this kind of thing
1: that's true so another story for us to keep tabs on in more fun news brook green gardens in south carolina has a new dinosaur exhibit open now until april 29th and it's called dinosaurs (laughs) and yes with an exclamation mark it has life-size dinosaurs of juveniles and adults 11 of them are animatronic. They've got ankylosaurus, stegosaurus, triceratops, and there's also a custom-built life-size juvenile hadrosaur that visitors can dissect, which means that you can pull out their bones and organs to learn more about it. That sounds really cool. There's also a dig site that teaches people how paleontologists excavate and lets kids uncover fossils. And there's baby dinosaurs on display. Tickets cost $8 for adults, $4 for kids ages 3 to 12, and it's free for kids under 3. In Scottsdale, Arizona, the Scottsdale Entertainment Complex is opening an interactive indoor dinosaur world on Black Friday, November 24th. There's going to be 50 life-size dinosaurs, velociraptor, triceratops, T-Rex, as well as a fossil dig, an obstacle course where you climb over dinosaur eggs and bones and then you climb the back of a dinosaur head hmm. as part of it, and nine what they call dinosaur islands with touchscreens that show facts about dinosaurs from different time periods. Tickets for that cost $24.95 for adults, $17.95 for kids ages 3 to 11. It sounds like there's also an exhibit that takes about 90 minutes to walk through, and you can reserve times to attend at PangeaLandofthedinosaurs.com. In Rosewood, Queensland in Australia, city councilor David Polk, I believe is how you say his name, he's getting a giant dinosaur built for Johnston Park. It's going to be a dinosaur with babies and eggs and an accompanying educational story of some sort and the goal is to have it built by april or may of next year it's going to cost one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and the idea is to help teach people about the fossils of queensland although based on what i read it wasn't clear yet which dinosaur it will be but i'm guessing some sort of carnivore especially with the babies and eggs
2: oh really i was thinking that meant that it was going to be something like a mayasaurus
1: probably some kind of dinosaur that's been found in queensland but
2: maybe mutaburosaurus I don't remember if Mutaburra is in Queensland or not.
1: I would guess Australovenator, but I also don't remember if that was (laughs) Queensland-specific.
2: Kind of brush up on our Australia dinosaurs, apparently.
1: (laughs) At least we could name a couple. Yeah. (laughs) Next, there's a new game involving dinosaurs out on iOS. It's called Smash Up. It actually started as a tabletop game, and now there's a digital version. And the game involves dinosaurs, ninjas, pirates, robots, and zombies on cards, and you shuffle the cards together and use them to take down your opponents. And Garrett, I think we played the tabletop version. We did. Years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So now you can play it digitally.
2: I think I got to play as a dinosaurs, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, it's all very random. <laughs> And last, Earth Touch News posted a great article called The Punny, The Peculiar, and The Unpronounceable, The Best Prehistoric Animal Names. Hmm. (laughs) I really like that title. So not all of them are dinosaur names. They include a trilobite named Han Solo and a turtle named Ninjemis, which means the ninja turtle. But the dinosaurs named include Bebe Long, which means baby dragon, and refers to Baby Louie, a dinosaur embryo. And they also include ornithomimosaurs in general, the bird mimic dinosaurs, which are kind of funny when you think about them, since birds came after dinosaurs. Yep. And before we get into our interview with Carrie Woodruff, which was amazing because we talked about sauropods, (laughs) we have another word from our sponsor, TRX Dinosaurs. So, you may recall back in episode 151, Delta Dromaeus, we got to talk to Keegan, the owner of TRX Dinosaurs. And if you go back and listen to that interview, you will hear about all the projects that they've already done and the process of making these awesome sculptures. It's a lot of work involved, but the results are really great. So, TRX Dinosaurs, as you know, they make these affordable, posable dinosaurs, and they're for private collectors and for museums. They've made a life-size Utah raptor, which was really big.
2: <laughs> to say the least.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they've also made Velociraptor, a baby T-Rex, and Deinonychus. But Keegan's also talked about making more than just theropods. I think he mentioned ornithopods.
2: And I think he said, too, that he was not opposed to making other extinct animals mm-hmm. if someone was really interested in one.
1: Although obviously we're biased towards the dinosaurs.
2: Yeah, dinosaurs are definitely what you want.
1: (laughs) But all of these are scientifically accurate and museum quality, which is really cool considering the price that you'd pay to have one made. And the sculptures are posable. So on Instagram, there's this really great photo of one of a work in progress velociraptor that is looking like it's going to pounce on Keegan's cat.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty funny.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And T-Rex Dinosaurs also makes puppets, as we mentioned, and they're very kid-friendly. All the kids we saw interacting with them love them.
2: Oh, yeah. And he said, too, that he made the teeth really squishy and soft because kids have the instinct to shove their hand into the dinosaur's mouth <laughs> yeah. for some reason. <laughs> That's probably what I would have done as a kid, too, so I guess I shouldn't be too judgmental, but it's a pretty bad instinct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you know it's a puppet. Yeah, okay. do they, though? Oh. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, if you want to learn more, you can go to their website at trxdinosaurs.com or check out their Instagram at trxdinosaurs where you can see all the work in progress stuff.
2: And now we're going to go on to our interview with Carrie Woodruff.
1: Today, we're joined by Carrie Woodruff, director of paleontology at Great Plains Dinosaur Museum in Malta, Montana, and also a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Toronto. And Carrie specializes in sauropods, which is awesome, and recently published a paper about how diplodocids grow. So with this most recent research, you examined over 20 individuals and then analyzed how they grew. So what did you look at? Were you looking for anything specific?
0: In a way, no. What we were trying to do was just sample as many specimens as we could and look at basically as many things as we could, looking at features morphologically, so the shape of the bones, and then looking also histologically, so the the microscopic anatomy of the bones themselves, looking at the shape and the inside of all of these different kinds of bones from all over the skeleton, from all these different individuals, from hopefully what we were hoping would be different growth stages, and that way, we could just try to get a better understanding of how the animals collectively grew
1: up. Cool. And so I know you looked at mostly Apatosaurus and Diplodocus. How did you decide that those were the ones that you wanted to study?
0: So Apatosaurus and Diplodocus come from, you know, the famous Morrison formation of Western uh, U.S. Mm-hmm. It's you know, one of the most heavily excavated and most heavily studied dinosaur-bearing formations in the world. You know, it's been continuously excavated since the late uh, 1880s. And if you go into, at least I can say this, you know, any dinosaur museum in North America, you'll find at least a bone from the Morrison Formation. (laughs) So a lot of material out there. And because the and the Patasaurus are so common, you know, I'm really interested in the the group that the Patasaurus and the Plotacus are a part of, so Diplodicoidea and means a fancy family mm-hmm. names, they were, you know, Diplodocus and Apatosaurus are the two most common diplodocids, especially just because there's so much material of Apatosaurus and Diplodocus in museums across the country.
1: Yeah. So did you have to go to a lot of museums to go study these fossils?
0: I did, but that was the really fun part. Um, <laughs> he many 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 years ago um my master's advisor Jack Horner he paid for me to go to almost every museum that had morrison material on um, basically between Bozeman Montana and uh, Bonn Germany
2: wow. wow which way is that going is that going east <laughs> from bozeman Yeah.
0: so going going uh, going east um Admittedly, there were some museums I did not get to hit, um, but you know, will hopefully hit. But it was great because, you know, this work, this was the plotisit ontogeny work, um, represented the main portion of my master's thesis, uh, but it's work that I've been doing since 2011. And, you know, actually many elements of it are still ongoing research. So that's kind of a neat thing that it's a piece of work that I've been able to do for so long. But luckily, you know, in certain respects doesn't really have an end in sight.
1: Yeah, that's great. (laughs) How did you first get into sauropods?
0: You know, everyone asks me that and I'm not really 100% sure. Um, (laughs) I was, you know, of course, you know, I was like every person who's interested in paleontology, you know, practically, I was just, you know, quote unquote, one of those weird kids. I was always, I was bitten by the dinosaur bug, always (laughs) interested by dinosaurs. Of course, you know, like Jurassic Park was always on, you know, dinosaur books, all that kind of stuff. and. Sort of like every, you know, diehard, you know, dinosaur fanboy, I was obsessed with theropods. And then somehow that switched uh, when I got to college. When I was in high school, I actually got to work for the Virginia Museum of Natural History, and they had a Morrison Formation dig site in north-central Wyoming. So we were digging theropods. So that was my first experience with them, but it wasn't some sort of, you know, epiphany with oh my gosh there's this even cooler group of dinosaurs out there um <laughs> it, it just I, I don't know really when it changed but you know I started researching sauropods and you know there are a lot of people studying sauropods but compared mm-hmm. to other scientific disciplines you know paleontology is a very small pool of people so we know everyone in our discipline and especially the smaller of a group you start working and the closer you know everyone even more So there really aren't that many people working in sauropods, really, in the scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And I just started reading a lot of previous work that had been known on sauropods. I mean, there's still so many questions left to be answered. And I thought a lot of these questions, I mean, weren't just good questions, but questions that really needed to be addressed, like the We've known about it for over, you know, 100 years, since the late 1880s. And we didn't really know anything about how the animal itself grew up right and i just found that fascinating
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we just know that it got very large
0: <laughs> yeah and we know we knew aspects of its growth like we knew how this feature changed or that feature or the bone tissue in a young animal looked like this and the bone tissue in an animal looked like that but i've related a lot of this to being like a puzzle We had a lot of individual pieces, but we didn't know what the picture as a whole looked like.
1: Mm -hmm. So what did you discover in your latest examinations?
0: So, of course, with any good analysis, you know, we're left at the end of the day with probably or hopefully as more questions as we actually sought to answer. A lot of my stuff with sauropod work is um, controversial, to say the least, but, you know, that's that's good science. (laughs) My goal is to, you know, get people thinking about a topic and a subject, and hopefully that spawns more research. And, you know, with every paper that comes out on both viewpoints, we're hopefully one step closer to understanding what the the truth of the matter is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know some people will, wouldn't surprise me if they've debated it, but some of the neat things we've been able to, I'll say, learn or have a better idea of understanding is exactly the changes that are going on. And I'm just going to use the plodocus because that's a sort of the flagship um, dinosaur mm-hmm. The sure. paper. You know, how it was growing up. So we knew, for instance, sauropods are, even their eggs, they're incredibly rare. We only have maybe two or three localities in the world where we know sauropod eggs. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, fruit cantaloupe size, right? So we know they came out of an egg the size of a cantaloupe. And mm-hmm. we know, again, speaking the plodocus-wise, you know, we're looking at like, the you know, a really big animal is, you know, just shy of a hundred feet long, you know, 89, 90 foot range, you know, give or take. Mm-hmm. But what happened between cantaloupe and a hundred feet, right? And <laughs> you know, it's happened, right? And that's, a, that's a great question. Yeah. Because before the dinosaur renaissance and people understanding the relationship with birds, you know, previous paleontologists thought, oh, reptiles take a really long time to grow dinosaurs are just really really big reptiles ergo it took dinosaurs a really really long time to grow so people came up with like you know sauropod taking hundreds of years to reach its adult size which we now know is wrong for many many reasons but you know looking at diplodocus our work has been able to show that you know a 20 foot long diplodocus so you know still what we consider that's big animal, but that's small by sauropod standard. Is,
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know, maybe, you know, in the two to six year old range, maybe as old as 10. Um, but you know, it's a young animal. Mm-hmm. A 60 foot long animal is in its early teenage years. <laughs> and that adult, you know, diplodocus, you know, being just, you know, 90 feet long and you know, give or take close to 100 feet long. You know, the oldest diplodocus that I was able to find, we estimate was in probably its mid-20s to earliest 30s at the time of its death. Wow. And there's still, even though we have a lot of, we had a lot of specimens we were able to analyze, there were still a lot of size ranges we didn't have, a lot of big gaps in that picture.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But we, you know, we could basically say cantaloupe to 100 feet long took 30 years. <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. That's impressive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not just the number of years it took these animals to get to be that long. Mm-hmm. What I found to be some of the neatest avenues of the research were understanding how the bones changed throughout growth. Right. So again, this is albeit some of the more contentious points. <laughs> but Previously, again, this is kind of basically pre-dinosaur renaissance to just immediately post-dinosaur renaissance. People thought that dinosaurs were largely, we would consider, you know, isometric. They grew, you know, a baby other than the size, a baby looked just like an adult, right? All it did was it just got bigger throughout its life. But we now know, especially in the past 10, 15 years, a lot of the work, um, Stemming from the lab of uh, Jack Horner and all of his students and research associates and uh, colleagues, that dinosaurs underwent radical, we would say radical ontogenetic trajectories. Mm -hmm. So Triceratops is the flagship (laughs) poster child ontogenetic change. You know, they look each growth stage looks so dramatically different that they were all in these growth stages were interpreted to
1: be different species. And still are for some people, right? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, Yeah, some people. (laughs) But admittedly, you know, sauropods didn't have big horns and frills and crests and things. So they didn't have these display features that were changing. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: But their skeletons were still undergoing radical shape change throughout the growth. Now, again, these changes weren't occurring because, you know, it's not like a display feature like a crest or a frill or a horn. Mm -hmm. It's the fact going from cantaloupe to 100 feet long. I mean, you can't come out of a cantaloupe and be perfectly designed and just get to be 100 feet long. Right. right. The forces, the gravity, the physics, everything. Your skeleton has to radically change. And so we would expect to see the greatest change in the shape of the bones, in the animals that undergo the greatest size change throughout their life, mm-hmm. especially as to be the biggest. And yet that was kind of an interesting thing is really ontogenetic change in sauropods has really dwindled compared to the amount of research that's been done on ontogenetic change in other groups of dinosaurs
1: Hmm.
0: so it's been to show that you know what elements of the skeleton do change that's been really cool
1: so what does change
0: oh there are lots of really cool changes so we see changes in the femur so you know that's the big bone in the leg Mm -hmm. so we see only does it get longer but uh where the the femur head that's where it fits into the hip socket the orientation of that changes there's a big important muscle attachment called the femur called the fourth trochanter mm-hmm. that changes position so these may seem like oh okay you know an orientation of this changes a muscle attachment switches here or there and that maybe doesn't sound like think about it you know you have to move right so how your bones are oriented to one another and where muscles where they attach proportionately, that's really important too. That says a lot about how these things are moving. Right. We've also noticed, for instance, one of the odder findings is there seems to be an extra hole in the head in young diplodocids that closes up when you get older. And, you know, I was telling people about this and they're like, well, that just sounds absolutely bizarre <laughs> and stop and think about it. We had an extra opening in our heads when we were young too.
1: I was just thinking, yeah, babies, right? The soft spot.
0: Soft spot. That's a <laughs> font has. we need to do the histology on it to determine if it forms the same way. And yes, I am proposing to cut up a sauropod skull. And yes, we <gasps> gasp,
1: always- those are rare.
0: <laughs> uh, for some people we don't have a we didn't have a problem finding them with the Museum of the Rockies. Uh, we have an entire ontogenetic series of the skulls. Oh nice. So that's really We can also understand how the skull changes through growth as well. But it does appear that these young diplodocids have this extra hole in their head for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to analyze why that's there, how it forms, how it closes, things like that. And albeit the most debated skeletal feature we've um, tracked through growth and growth, we call it ontogeny, in Apatosaurus and Diplodocus and a bunch of other sauropods, in a bunch of their vertebrae, so like the vertebra and the neck, the backs, and the first part of the tail, the fancy term for it is we call it a bifurcated neural spine. Mm-hmm. So it's a split. Imagine, given the peace sign, <laughs> we would argue that we have evidence to show that in young diplodocids, they are a short, single, unsplit spine, and that this split spine develops as they get bigger and older. Interesting, and we've been able to show how that coincides with the mechanics of these animals getting larger.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think that helps that support weight or something, or do you not know yet?
0: Yeah, so we have some ideas, and again, these are theories that need, you know, full proper computer biomechanical modeling. Mm-hmm. But what we suggest, and actually, um, I did a paper on this in uh, 2016, was that, you know, as Organs like the neck of a diplodocus, right, is getting longer. It's also getting heavier. And again, boy, you want to talk about a debate in sauropod research? I you could have a whole uh, episode on it, just how they held their necks.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
0: The two camps: they are the vertical neckers and the horizontal neckers. So, you know, <laughs> vertical neckers, that's you know. Jurassic Park-esque brachiosaurus, You know, they use these necks to feed high up in trees, you know, very very vertical swan-like posture. Mm -hmm. Then there's the horizontal neckers, which that was, you know, that whole front is being led by the groundbreaking work um, by Dr. Kent Stevens showing how the mechanics of the neck in the plotis is actually better for being held out horizontally and feeding sideways. And so we think that these split spines are developing basically as the neck is not just getting longer it's getting heavier and it has to move side to side Mm -hmm. this split in the spines actually we've looked at modern animals that have these split spines as well and the soft tissues associated with it actually have to do to a split ligament in the neck and so if you think about like you know, those old drinking birds, you know, you tilt the head down, it just keeps rocking yeah. forward and backwards. So that's, <laughs> we relate that the same like kangaroos bouncing, you know, or horse races running. Uh, it's elastic rebound. The fact is you have this big ligament and, you know, it's split. There's a left and a right half. So the, you know, the diplodocus moves its neck to the left, right? And then it lets it go. And it basically has this free energy, you know, the stored energy in the right pulls it to the right and then it keeps going. So we suggest that this split spine and this split ligament help them to be able to feed for long periods of time with this horizontal neck posture and feeding side to side. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you didn't have this split ligament system and the split spine system and you were just relying on your muscles. That's a lot of caloric energy just to move your head side to side. Sure. And so that wouldn't be very efficient. But again... Analogous to, you know, a kangaroo bouncing. They're able to do that because of this stored elastic energy. We proposed it was a similar way. Mm-hmm. But it's really cool to see how this develops through growth because this suggests that the forces acting upon a young diplodocus are different than that acting upon an older diplodocus. Hmm. And there's evidence coupled with some new work we're hopefully going to have published here shortly that suggests that a young Diplodocus was not only feeding differently, so it might not have been feeding side to side, it might have been feeding on different plants even than its own mature species.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I think I've I've heard similar things about other dinosaurs and they kind of use that as an explanation of why there were less diverse animals going on because like the young might have filled some of the niches that The adults didn't, so a single animal could kind of fill more of the ecosystem.
0: Certainly, and you're also, you're not competing, you know, during your life stage, you're eating different food types. You're also not competing with members of your own species, Mm -hmm. or at least your growth stages of your own species, right?
2: Yeah. Is there, so the obvious question, (laughs) I think that most paleontologists would, uh, put out there, maybe as just like a devil's advocate, is how sure are you that they're not just different species when you have such a huge change, like the type of, you know, the number of spines in the vertebrae?
0: Uh, that's a good question. So of course that gets back <laughs> to what we'd call a lumper or a splitter. <laughs> um, so here's the argument I would propose and what we tried to propose. Now you know sauropods and again morrison sauropods are really common but it's actually it was really hard to find all of the same bones that we could compare in all of the same animals that was incredibly hard and once you start winnowing down like what specific bone you're looking at like oh, i want to look at neck vertebra eight right (laughs) that gets really hard because then you gotta find every one of them that's a neck vertebra eight from all these size ranges so there's a lot of size ranges you miss so what we did in this analysis was, you know, it was really tempting at times. Like, let's just say you saw a, a femur, so the big thigh bone, and it was a meter long. So, you know, that's like a little over three feet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that that's small by sauropod standards. And, and you have a, a femur that was two meters long, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, twice a length. You'd want to just initially say, oh, the small one is from a young animal and the big one is from a big animal, right? That's our... Basic, you know, human assumption is just to correlate size to age, yeah. but you know, Shack and Mini Me are human examples that just disprove that, right? <laughs> you know, people <Shapiro laughs> isn't the oldest human being on the planet. I guess that would be Yao Ming as well. Um, <laughs> so we know that there's a loose correlation to size and age, but it's not a rule. So what we did in this analysis is we just looked at all the bones, right? And mm-hmm. that was the great about doing the histology. So people have tried to argue, like if you look at mammals, for instance, like the ends of the limb bones, we know in mammals those fuse, the ends of the limb bones fuse as the animal gets older. Mm
3: -hmm. So if
0: you have unfused ends of the limb bones, you know you have a young mammal, right? So people have tried to correlate similar things to dinosaurs. But the big problem is we can't watch that dinosaur grow up. We don't know. And, of course, as Jack Corner would famously say, um, you know, we have a very mammal centric viewpoint of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, <laughs> right.
0: Our mammals, therefore, when we're studying something, we try to give it mammal like tendencies or associations. You know, we can look at birds, but birds do a lot of really weird things. And so people have tried to argue with dinosaurs. Oh, size correlates to age or, oh, if this thing fuses, it must be an adult. And if that thing's not fused, it's young. But the fact of the matter is the demonstrably proven way to determine a dinosaur's maturity, at least, is to look at it under the microscope. So make a histologic slide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we tried to histologically sample as many elements as we could. And that's really debated. So, you know, I don't know, you know, in the past if you all have covered histology or, you know, even the general audience listening, you know, how background everyone has with histology, but, you know, if you cut certain bones from certain animals, you know, some mammal bones, you know, limb bones like a femur, and you cut it in half, just like a tree cut down, you know, if you look at the tree, some, you'll see these lines. And these lines correlate to yearly growth marks. Mm-hmm. And we've done this in modern animals, we can see this and we know that these lines correlate to some kind of yearly signal. And so we presume that, you know, we see similar lines in the dinosaur bone. These are growth lines. There's even debate within that, you know, but we can look at that. Mm-hmm. There's also wonderful just like the top sauropod histology work comes out of Germany from the lab of Dr. Martin Sonder showing that, you know, not only can we determine the age, but if you look at the bone tissue, so it doesn't matter what kind of animal it is. Young animals have a bone tissue that looks very different from older animals. Mm. And so So um, Nicole Klein and Martin Sonder came up with this great way of basically mapping the maturity of sauropod bone tissue from least mature to fully mature. So even though that way they couldn't tell, oh, this individual was blank years old when it died, they could look at a couple specimens and pick which ones were either more or less mature. So what we did with the sauropods we analyzed is, you know, we'd see this bone. We wouldn't want to have a preconceived notion about whether or not it was a young animal or an old animal. Mm -hmm. And then, if we could, we histologically sampled it. And from doing all of that, we were able to then look at the shape and the microanatomy on the inside of the bone and try to determine if, yes, it was a small bone because it actually did come from a young animal. So what we ended up doing when we sort of sampled this gamut of different features, histologically and morphologically, because in the past, a lot of times people have done just histologic analysis or morphologic analysis. Mm -hmm. And the, the debate has ebbed and flowed, is one superior than the other? But we did this combined approach, and what we wanted to see was groupings. Now, we all grew up, you know, we know that growth is developmental, you know, there aren't these strict demarcations, you know, you don't go, it's not strictly A to B to C to D. So what we were able to do when everything was said and done is we could see these sort of broad categorizations that all of the, making this up, you know, all of the 10 year, you know, five to 10 year old diplodocus, their femora, so, you know, their limb bones, were in this particular size range. Their bone tissue in their femur was this kind of tissue. Their spines in their neck vertebra looked like this. You know, the opening in the head was this size. Then when we move up to like 15-year-old diplocus, then we saw these other groupings. And if we looked at even older Duplacus, we saw these other groupings. So we were able to sort of make these age demarcations And we actually called it the system because we were looking at histology and morphology. We called it the histologic morphologic ontogeny scale. And I know that's a big mouthful, but (laughs) that's because the histologic ontogeny scale has been used for sauropods and a morphologic ontogeny scale. And so that's what we really wanted to try to emphasize with the system is it's the cooperation. So the fact that we were trying to argue if you really want to say the most about the intimate details of the life histories of these animals, you have to have both methods. And it's not complete or finished by any means. I mean, there's so much more we need to do to be able to understand this and fill this out. But it's at least a preliminary look at how these animals, how these animals as a whole were growing up. And the cool thing is, Not only can we potentially recognize new things we need to look at, but then potentially we could also take like an isolated bone, like let's just say you find a random diplodocus femur. Mm -hmm. Right. And then look at its shape or internal structure and then compare it to the system. And then maybe you might be able to say more about that, the life of that individual animal than you thought you might have been able to before.
2: Yeah, that sounds really useful.
0: Well, we hope it's useful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's all really great. And yeah, I hadn't really thought about before how little we knew about growth rates of these types of animals.
0: (laughs) Oh, growth rates about dinosaurs is just that's a whole nother topic. But, you know. Yeah. You know, yes, it's a lot of hard work involved into it. But it's something, you know, you might initially think might be really simple to answer. Mm-hmm. But when in reality, it just the multiple levels of complication, you know, really make it uh in many cases with these dinosaurs, you know, answers that, you know, or questions we yet have answers for. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Did you get lucky and have any like bone beds with multiple ages from the same thing or did you have to do them all individually all over the place?
0: A little bit of both. So Again, luckily, because the Morrison formation has been sampled for so long, there was a lot of material out there.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So I could, like, basic measurements, things like that I could do. Now, admittedly, when it comes time to going to the museum and saying, hey, I'd like to chop your dinosaur, I'm <laughs> a wee bit hesitant than others. But that has been changing. You know, some people want to call histology destructive sampling because you're destroying a bit of it. Mm-hmm. We conversely call it enhanced sampling. And of course, our argument would be, if you can learn more about that individual animal by looking at the inside of its bones than you could just looking at the outside, isn't that enhancing our knowledge about that one
1: That's a good Um, spin, yeah.
0: (laughs) Many museums around the world are becoming way more proactive on histology. So there was actually a lot of material already sampled I could use. And a lot of museums let me cut up really important specimens. So like the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, mm-hmm. let me sample the paratype of Diplodocus carnegia. So that's the second one ever found.
1: Oh, um, nice!
0: Really important specimen. The New Mexico Museum of Natural History, let me sample quote-unquote seismosaurus. Uh, now we know it's Diplodocus holorum. Um, so a lot of museums let me do it. It is a bit easier. Again, I was at the Museum of the Rockies you know, with Jack Horner. So, I mean, we could just cut up anything that was ours. Mm-hmm. And actually collect sauropods um everyone thinks that museum of the rockies has you know oh they just have t-rex and triceratops but to toot our horn um we actually have one of the greatest uh growth series of sauropods that i mean i'm sure this is biased at least me saying it but uh that i've seen at any collection in the world so we have a quarry that we were collecting from that was just outside of bozeman where we were getting largely complete nearly fully complete skeletons of immature diplodocus specimens.
2: Oh, wow. Wow. Nice.
0: So that was really nice because, again, like when I was saying earlier, like, you know, oh, I want to look at neck vertebra eight from a quote unquote subadult, right? Mm -hmm. That hard trying to find that because if you just have this one bone, you know, well, is it seven? Is it nine? But, you know, when you have these complete animals, oh, yeah, I know which one is that. Um, (laughs) It also really helped with these animals because when you have a bone bed, all these bones jumbled up and, you know, they're all similar size, similar age range. How do you know that two bones go to one particular animal? Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That got really hard. And admittedly, admittedly, there were many parts of, my, of our study where that's the best that we could do. And we had to say that. But there were some remarkable specimens like these ones we had at in Museum of the Rockies and other museum collections where we knew that we had, you know, either parts or large associations of skeletons of a single individual. And that was great because, you know, then we could actually say that we knew that these particular bones came from this particular animal.
2: Yeah, that helps a lot.
1: Definitely. So. Where's the best place for people if they want to learn more about you and what you're working on? Where can they go?
0: Hopefully the Museum of the Rockies. They've talked about plans of redoing all of these sauropods and having them mounted. Um, So that'll be cool. And we'll definitely have that research, uh, hopefully, in a future display. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if people are just, you know, Googling and want to find things out, um, you know, all of my papers are on Google Scholar. You know, a few of them are open access. So anyone around the world, even without an academic affiliation can, you know, read them. Um, currently for my PhD studies, I'm a, I'm a doctoral student with David Evans at the Royal Ontario Museum. Mm-hmm. So the Evans lab has a great website. So there's uh, information on not just the research lab doing, but all of the participants and the projects they're doing. Um, so good resources like that, I'd recommend.
1: Wonderful. You're also pretty active on Twitter, right?
0: Uh, trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> are a lot more uh, social butterflies than me but uh it, i've really been finding of course i'm sure everyone's able with social media but it's really great the people you can connect with you know as simple as a you know a tweet is how many people you can connect with and meet because of that
1: definitely <laughs> well thanks so much for taking the time with talking to us today i i think i've told you several times sauropods are my favorite so this has been a real treat <laughs> <laughs>
0: Perfect. And anytime y'all want to talk sauropods, I'm game.
1: (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Thanks again, Carrie. Really love talking about sauropods.
2: Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) I like sauropods too, just not as much as you do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And now on to our dinosaur of the day, sauropod giraffe titan, which was a request from Michelle and Remy via Facebook. So thanks. The name Giraffatitan means giant giraffe, and it was a sauropod that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Tanzania in Africa. The type species is Giraffatitan bronchii, and originally it was thought to be a brachiosaurus. It was first named and described in 1914 by Werner Genensch, but as Brachiosaurus bronchii. And this was based on specimens found in the Tendiguru Formation in 1909 and 1912 in Tanzania, which was then German East Africa. Partial skeletons were found, including three skulls, limb bones, vertebrae, and teeth. And then in 1903, Elmer Riggs named and described Brachiosaurus, and we cover that in episode 39 if you want to learn more. Brachiosaurus is one of the most well-known dinosaurs, but interestingly, its image is based mainly on Giraffatitan titan and not Brachiosaurus... Altothorax. However, Brachiosaurus and Giraphetitan are considered to be sister taxa. In 1988, Gregory S. Paul said that Brachiosaurus bronchii had significant differences compared to Brachiosaurus altothorax, the one that was found in North America. He thought that the proportions of its trunk vertebrae were different and that it had a more gracile build, so he created the subgenus Brachiosaurus bronchi. In 1991, George Olszewski said there were enough differences for it to be its own genus, and so then it became titan bronchii. In 1998, a description of a North American brachiosaurus skull was published. The skull was found almost 100 years earlier, and it was actually the skull Marsh used in early reconstructions of Brontosaurus, Mm. and it was identified as Brachiosaurus. And this skull looks similar to Camarasaurus in some ways, with similar front teeth and a longer, less hollowed out skull compared to the short-snouted, high-crested giraffe Titan skull. Not all scientists accepted Giraffetitan as a separate genus at first, but then Michael Taylor published a detailed comparison of the two in 2009, and he showed differences between the two in every fossil bone that he could compare. So he showed differences in size, shape, and proportion. Giraffatitan, as you can imagine, looked a little bit like a giraffe. It had long forelimbs and a long neck. And for a long time, it was the largest known dinosaur, but now other titanosaurs have been found that are bigger, like Argentinosaurus and Patagotitan, for example. Giraffe Titan was about 71.5 to 73.8 feet, or 21.8 to 22.5 meters long, and 39 feet or 12 meters tall, based on a subadult found. So it may have been longer, maybe even up to 85 feet or 26 meters, based on a fibula of another specimen found. The fibula that was found is 13% larger than the subadults. Giraffatitan is estimated to weigh 23 to 39 tons, though it could have been larger, and estimates are based on the subadult. The skull had a high crest. For a long time, scientists thought that giraffe Titan's nostrils were on the top of its head. Early theories about sauropods, as we've discussed, were that they used their nostrils like a snorkel and spent a lot of time underwater. Hmm. Now scientists think that giraffe Titan, though, was a land animal. Like giraffes. <laughs> Giraffatitan had nostrils near its snout, not at the top of its head, even though the nasal openings were high above the eyes, and this is according to Lawrence Wittmer's 2001 study.
2: Yeah, meaning that the skull nasal openings were near the top of his head, but then the soft tissue redirected it towards the front of the face, where you'd normally expect to see nasal openings.
1: Yep. So, if the nostrils were near the snout, it's possible then that Giraffatitan used the crest at the top of its head as a resonating chamber, possibly for communicating among its own species, or attracting a mate, or displaying dominance. Giraffatitan had spatulate teeth, looked like chisels. And there's been a hypothesis that Giraffa had a trunk, but Giraffa had wear and tear on its teeth that would have been from biting and tearing off plant matter and not from grinding, which would have been the case if it had had a trunk and used that to rip off branches and leaves and then ground up its food.
2: I wonder why someone thought it would have a trunk. That would really make it look crazy.
1: I couldn't find much information.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it would just add even more pressure on that super long neck. (laughs) Like
1: if you put a giraffe and an elephant together.
2: Yeah, weird.
1: (laughs) Yeah. giraffe titan was probably a high browser, but could get to food at the tops of trees. And it had claws on the first toe of its front feet and first three toes of its hind feet. It had a small brain with a low encephalization quotient, which estimates possible intelligence of either 0.6 or
3: 0.79 oof.
1: yeah <laughs> not great but who knows some people used to think giraffe titan had a second brain because of this sacral enlargement above the hip but that was probably glycogen bodies which stored energy you can see giraffe titan at the museum for natricund in berlin it's one of the largest and tallest mounted skeletons in the world the Giraffe Titan in Berlin is actually made of five individuals. It's a composite, and it's recently been updated based on what we know about it.
2: That's kind of like the Patagotitan is based on several individuals, too.
1: Mm-hmm. If you can't make it to Berlin, you can also see Giraffe Titan come to life on Google Cardboard or YouTube 360 in Giraffe Titan Back to Life in Virtual Reality. And in that, the skeleton comes to life and turns into a 3D dinosaur and walks around. It's pretty cool.
2: Nice. I love some good VR. Mm -hmm. And our fun fact of the day comes from our time working in the two medicine formation for all of one evening, for all of one afternoon.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, what do you mean our time working?
2: (laughs) We were there for a day. We learned that gray-blue sediment can indicate that it was an anaerobic environment, and that means that it was likely a good environment for fossils to come from. So if you see gray-blue sediment, it might be a good place to look for fossils. And the reason that an anaerobic environment is important is because it doesn't support life like bacteria or other organisms that need oxygen, and those organisms can gobble up dinosaurs or other organisms that get buried.
1: All right. Fun fact. hmm <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so that you get updates to all the newest episodes. If you'd like to join our growing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com/ainodino. Thanks again and until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at INODino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com.
2: Or follow us on Google,
3: Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at
1: iknowdino.